Welcome one and all. As we come toward the end of our series, we have three sessions left, including today. And let me tell you our, our schedule then that's coming up. We have today and then two more sessions. And then three weeks from today on the 27th and the two weeks following, the 27th, the 3rd, and the 10th, I will have what we call our newcomers orientation in a separate part of the building, a different room for any of you who would like to participate. We offer that periodically for those who are new to our church to acquaint you with our church a bit better so that you can make a decision as to whether or not this would be the place that the Lord would have you. There are no obligations. I don't even follow up on those who attend it, so we don't pressure you at all. It's just informational to help you know more about us. Uh, but that will be the 27th, 3rd, and 10th. So if you'd like to do that, uh, let me know. I'll know how many to plan for and how many of the notebooks to make as we go through a notebook of material that tells you about our history and what we believe and where we've come from and where we hope to uh, go in the future by God's grace. Okay. So during those weeks, we'll have some uh, of our men teaching you during this hour. And uh, the following weeks, after that has concluded, January 17 and January 24, I'll be gone. I'll be in India with our missionary, Daniel Kumar. And it's my first opportunity to go there and see the work uh, up close and personal. And I'm excited about doing that. And I covet your prayers as we, as we do that. And I get an opportunity to teach for a week at the Bible college that they've established there as well. And then on January 31st, we will start a new series in this hour called You Mean the Bible Teaches That? Question mark. And it's going to be about ethical, major, major ethical issues that are taught in the Bible, things like abortion and homosexuality and the capital punishment and those kinds of things that lots of people have questions about and may not know what the Bible says on those topics. So we'll be doing that series beginning January the 31st. So today and two more sessions in our relationship series. There are a number of scandalous teachings in Christianity. Scandalous teachings. Let me list a, a few of them. And we consider what we talked about in the 930 hour, if you were able to be here, from Hebrews chapter 9. That sin requires a payment. And that sin requires a payment of, of death and, and bloody death, even. And I mentioned during that first hour how uh, difficult that is for us to contemplate and think about. But God made it a point in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, to keep that before the psyche of the people. That they constantly saw sacrifice and they saw blood as an illustration of how heinous sin is. And yet for many people, they can't overcome the offense, the horrific nature of seeing a violent act in sacrifice because of sin. And of course, that was all preparatory and anticipating the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the horrors of the cross. And so for many, that is, that is just too much to take. The idea that God would require that kind of payment for sin, including the payment of the Son of God himself. Or here's another one. You know, Christianity teaches that you don't pay, really, for your own sins. I mean, somebody else has paid for it. A substitute has taken your place. Well, for many, that idea is just, that's not right, that's not fair. You did the crime, you got to do the time. 
It's scandalous to many that Christianity teaches, as it does, that I don't ultimately pay. And that's why the Bible says things like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is craziness to many minds. And, and it says to those who are perishing. The idea that God would have to come as sacrifice, that sacrifice would have to be done at all, that somebody else would pay the penalty instead of the one who's actually done the crime. And I use that word scandal advisedly. These are scandalous teachings in Christianity because that word is actually used in your New Testament. In Romans chapter 9, Jesus is said to be a scandalon. That's the Greek word from which we get our English word scandal. That Jesus is said to be a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes men fall. The teachings of Christianity are so out of this world, literally, that they blow people's minds that much that they are scandalous to the non-Christian mind. And it goes on. I don't work for them. Eternal life. There's nothing I can do to merit eternal life. Eternal life, according to the Bible, is the gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Yeah, be kidding. You just get awarded? You just get handed eternal life? I'm going to, so I'm going to heaven if I've come to Jesus. And here's another one of those scandalous teachings. I'm, I'm going to heaven, come what may, because eternal life is not a matter of what I do, but what he has done and thus is given as a gift and received as a gift. But on top of all of that... I can do whatever I want. <laughs> well, now we're talking. That's my kind of religion. Let's party. But I mean that. I can do whatever I want. You say there's got to be a catch. We'll see the catch in a bit. But Jesus says, in, in contrast to the first part of your Bible, and in contrast to every other religion out there, that is really a bunch of hoops or rungs on a ladder that you have to climb or jump through in order to get to heaven. Jesus says, in contrast to the first part of your Bible that had laws and regulations, come unto me. All you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, says Jesus. I'm going to heaven. He gives it as a free gift, because he was the substitute on the cross, and he paid the entire cost, and I can then do what I want? You know, if you go through your New Testament you really don't find all that many rules. There are some. There are commands. Husbands, love your wives, for instance. And commands to wives and to children to obey their parents and so on. But comparatively speaking, they're relatively few in number. There were 613, 613, 613 commands in the law of Moses. 
You have a relative handful of commands in the New Testament. And the few that you have are pretty much general in nature. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives. Well then, how is, this, how is people's behavior supposed to be regulated? People will just do whatever they want. And I'm saying that that is what Christianity teaches. You can do what you want. Well, if you don't have these rules and these commands regulating people's behavior, what will possibly regulate their behavior? You remember the first part of your Bible had all sorts of them, 613 in the Law of Moses alone, to regulate behavior. How well did that go, do you think? Didn't turn out all that great, did it? The old covenant clearly did not work. But the new covenant is, as we're seeing in the, our study of the book of Hebrews in our 930 hour, the new covenant involves putting my laws in their heart and I will give them my spirit to now motivate them to do what they ought to do. And so there is a regulator, there is regulation, but the regulation is not lists. The regulation is my spirit that I give to my people that motivates them to do what they ought. Now here's the catch. So I've been waiting for that. You can do what you want. But when you come to Jesus, what you want to do radically changes. He gives you his spirit to move you and me in the direction that he has for us, to follow the path that he has blazed for us. You can do what you want, but when you come to Jesus, what you want to do radically changes. Now, here's why that's important. Do you remember in our very first session in this series, very first session, many weeks ago now, I said that we all come to our relationships with with baggage. And that baggage falls into these three categories of nature and nurture and desires. That third category of desires, what I want to do, what motivates me, has become a huge category for us as we've gone forward in our study. We've seen that in our relationships, we're going to have to ask ourselves questions at various points as to who is going to rule in this relationship. And the question is not directed at me and another individual. It's me or God. Who's going to rule, me or God? What do you want? What do you desire? We saw one of the other questions in my relationships is, who am I going to worship in this relationship? Whose agenda is going to be priority in this relationship? As we've gone through these weeks now, that category of desire, what you want to do, has become very prominent. You can do what you want. Christianity teaches as much. But when you come to Christ, what you want to do changes radically. So, what do you want? Let me ask it another way. Who do you want to be like? You know, who's your role model? Who are you looking to to determine, I want, that's what I want. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. The whole Tiger Woods scandal that's gone down in the last couple weeks 
has reminded us that frail, human, so-called role models will indeed fail. But, you know, Tiger had been branded. Tiger had been branded with a particular image, and now the brand is, is tarnished, as inevitably happens. Michael Jordan was branded. He was so, he was so uh, uh, upfront about it that they had one commercial for Nike that said, do you want to be like Mike? Just up front, be like Mike. Be like Tiger. What do you want? Or more importantly, who do you want to be like? And really the question for us is this then, friends. You can do what you want. But when you come to Jesus, what you want changes. And who you want to be like is refocused radically. So that I want to be like Christ. It's not like anybody else. It's like Him. I want to follow Him. I want to follow the one whose burden is, whose yoke is easy and burden is light. And so I want to see what he does in relationships. And I want to see what he says about relationships. Because when I came to him, there was a radical reordering internally by the spirit that he placed in me of my desires and my values and my priorities and in turn, therefore, my words and my actions. What do you want? Who do you want to be like? Is the crucial question. As we look at the bottom of page 95 in your notebook, the big question is what will it take to have a great relationship? But back of that question is the answer to the one I'm asking. And that is, what do you want? And who do you want to be like in your relationships? On page 96 at the top, what we know, believe, and what we say we believe do not automatically make successful relationship. What makes words powerful is the action that flows. What makes correct thinking about God powerful and meaningful is the life that emerges daily from that knowledge. We've talked a lot about thinking the correct way about our relationships, but that understanding is on display not in our words or our thinking, but in how we actually treat other people. And so what do you, who do you want to follow? Who do you want to be like in these relationships? And the Bible does, even in the New Testament, have some directives for us. But they are these general sorts of directives that involve people and are exemplified by the one whom we should Strive to be like the Lord Jesus. And so the question is asked in that second paragraph. The Bible has many passages on what we should be doing for, quote, one another. How many one another commands can you name? So love one another. And pray for one another. And forgive one another. And serve. <laughs> that hurt. Serve one another. Serve other people. Instead of serving myself. What do you want to do? It ain't that. Right? In our natural sinful flesh, that's not what we want to do. But that's what Jesus teaches and that's what Jesus models. And if you want to see some people who really struggled with that, like you and I do, 
If you have your Bible and you can turn to Mark 10 and juggle your notebook, please do that. If you can't, then just listen. Mark 10. Verse 32, Mark 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem when Jesus leading the way, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to them. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That's sobering. But notice what these guys do. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. There's humility. hey, we're on to something big here. We're with somebody really important. We're with a guy on a mission. We got to get in good and get get it while the getting is good. So, Master, do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Verse 36, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Nothing much. You're going to die for the sins of all humanity. Here's what we've got in mind. What can we get out of this? What do you want? And this lurks in the heart of every one of us, myself included, does it not? What do I want? I want what's in it for me. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Foolishly, verse 39, sure, we can do that. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. Be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, let me just stop there. It's not real clear why they were indignant. Indignant because that's a foolish question. You shouldn't be asking Jesus something like that at a time like this. More likely, they're ticked that they got to him first. That's the way the twelve were. Bickering amongst each other about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. What can I get out of this? Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what do you want? Well, if you want to be great, greatness in the kingdom is for those who serve, says Jesus. And I am giving you the model to follow of service, of ultimate service. 
being willing to give my life for those who do not deserve it. And so, friends, I ask you that question then. What do you want in your relationships? And how are we going to make great relationships? Depends. It's, it's crucial that we properly answer that question. What do I want? Who do I want to be like? And Jesus says, I give you the role model of who you should want to follow and what you should want to be like. And so look at the bottom of page 96 then, if you will. When we think about our relationships... How many of them ultimately revolve around making sure our concerns are heard and our self-defined, quote, needs are met? Start with those we love the most. I'm married and have four children, says the author, and most of the time I'm committed to thinking about how they can make my life more fulfilling. I know this is true because of how easily I get irritated when I have to give up personal comfort to serve them. That's with the people I love. I haven't begun to think about the difficult people. And I won't even bring up enemies. <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies. I can't even love the people in my house. And do you see that in yourself? This is the first step to becoming a servant and in being great in our relationships. We must see how much of a servant we aren't before we become the kind of servant we must be. And the disciples had to learn this too, top of page 97, which means we're in good company. Twelve normal men spent several years in Jesus' presence, and yet they were so thick-headed that they were vying for power and position. It was a lesson Jesus felt was important enough to stress even as he prepared for his death. And so John records for us in John 13 how Jesus intends for us to follow him. So you have Mark 10, and remember Mark 10, the episode in Mark 10, let us sit with you at your right and your left, is preceded by Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen to me. It's the night before Jesus dies, and they're arguing about that. And now in John's account of the night before Jesus dies, that begins in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, and goes through chapter 17, he begins in an upper room with these same disciples who have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And wouldn't you love to have been there when God the Son stands up, takes a basin and a towel, and he demonstrates for them what true greatness is. And he goes to wash their feet. John 13. That was a menial task. Most of you know that. I mean, it's demeaning just to think about now. Washing someone's feet. But it was the role of a servant back in those days. People had to travel by foot very often. And they traveled either barefoot or perhaps with sandals, but when they came into somebody's home, their feet were dusty. And so it was common for a servant to come and wash the feet of a guest who came into the, to the house. And so there would be a basin there for that purpose. And there's apparently nobody here who's done that. And Jesus uses this opportunity... He had told the disciples to arrange to rent a room. They didn't get a servant to go with the room. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to show them what servanthood is. And he begins to wipe their dirty feet. And this is the Jesus who's going to die the next day for these guys. For these extremely unworthy guys. 
Now, there are a bunch of lessons then that come out of that for us. And the first one's on page 97. Circumstances do not determine whether we serve. You got the circumstances here? The circumstances in that upper room where Jesus is serving them in this menial task of washing their feet, the circumstances of the night before he dies, and Jesus knows full well, has told them precisely what's going to happen. He knows every piece of it. He knows what's going to happen. He is willingly taking it on. And yet in the midst of all of that, who is Jesus thinking about? I know what you'd be thinking about. I know what I'd be thinking about. Don't you people know how hard I work for you? I slave and slave and slave. And all you can think about is whether you can sit at my right or my left. And you've said that kind of stuff, and I've said that kind of stuff in the midst of our relatively puny circumstances our relatively small inconveniences. And here is the Lord of glory himself on the eve of his death for us and for them. And who's he thinking about? Not himself, but about them. Who do you want to be like? And who do I want to be like? Circumstances do not determine whether we serve. Page 97. One of our most common excuses for not being more loving and helpful is circumstances. When we're weighed down with difficulty, what's the first thing we want to do? We don't want to do anything. We want others to do things for us. We want to be served, not served. I only have to look as far back as yesterday for examples, and I'm sure the same is true for all of us. When my children press in on me, the second they arrive from school, I'm suddenly reminded of all my responsibilities. Don't they understand I have a job with many things to think about? Why do they insist that I help them with their homework immediately? Don't they see that I have more important things to be concerned about than their assignments? I can relate to this. And I'm sure some of you can as well. These are the thoughts that race through my mind. Soon I feel convicted about my impatience. I try to rationalize. I'd be more patient if I didn't have to worry about my bills, getting my work done. I'd be kinder, gentler. Father, if they would be less aggressive, more obedient and respectful. In other words... Bottom of page 97, if my circumstances were easier, I'd be a better servant. If I could take care of my cares, I would be more caring. In fact, my children just got home from school, he says, as I'm writing this, and I'm getting irritable. But isn't that what we do? And the one that we should want to be like gives us the supreme example of not allowing the circumstances to determine whether or not we serve. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me over the years, I will serve the Lord when I get this taken care of, whatever this is, fill in the blank. I'll get it together in following Jesus when I get this out of the way. Pastor, I've just got a checklist of two or three or five things. As soon as I get that done, I'm with you. Count on me. But what's going to happen after item number three is taken care of? There'll be a new item number one and two and three, right? Circumstances do not determine whether I serve. 
I'll just say as a quick aside, they may determine how I'm able to serve, but not whether I serve. Bottom of page 98. Someone's worthiness does not determine whether we serve. Jesus not only serves in the midst of his great crisis, he serves the very ones that don't deserve it. As he scanned that room, I wonder what he's thinking. Judas, who's betraying, and hand him over to the Roman authorities. He sees Peter, who would soon deny that he was ever associated with Jesus. The other ten disciples would use the feet he is washing to run for cover when Jesus needs them the most. And Jesus knows all of that, and yet he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. Think of all the areas of worthiness that we consider when we're faced with serving somebody. Will they appreciate it? If not, I ain't doing it. We consider past times when we were burned. Whether they're going to expect more. Whether they've done anything for us in the past. We consider how they've hurt us in the past. Their sin and their selfishness. We consider how critical they might be. But Jesus calls us, middle of that paragraph, to serve and move into people's lives even when we risk being vulnerable, unappreciated, pushed and annoyed, unrecognized, even when it means serving the selfish and weak. And so who tempts us to give up? Who in our lives has maxed out their compassion quota? Bonnie. Because that's your sixth book. You don't get any more. Thank you for being my example. Jesus is telling us to serve those people. Think about the one or two people who have most significantly impacted your life for good. Weren't humility and servanthood a large part of their influence? And thirdly, circumstances don't determine whether we serve. The worthiness of those we serve does not determine it. And then thirdly, middle of page 99, our position does not determine whether we serve. The idea here is, is this, that as Jesus told them in the disciples in Mark chapter 10, the Gentiles lord it over. They look at position and lord it over and expect to be served, but not so with you. If you want to be great, you'll be the servant of all. And so you don't call rank on people just because you can. Paul Tripp, who wrote this, talks about how he does that or is tempted to do that with his children. I'm the father. The Bible says children are to obey their parents. It's perfectly right for me to over and over say, hey, kid, I'm in charge here. I'm getting a bunch of amens in the front row here that I haven't gotten about anything else I've said this entire ten weeks. And it's natural for us to think that way. And we want to teach our children to do that, but we want to teach our children to do that as we model servanthood in front of them. As when we sin against them, we come and ask forgiveness of them. I wonder how many of us have ever had the occasion to go to our children and say, will you forgive me? I yelled in anger. I yelled at your mother. I yelled at you. I was impatient with you. I ask you to forgive me. I've had to do that numerous times. We model that in front of our children. 
And then we say, how can I serve you? How can I help you? Now, how am I going to do all that? You guys are sitting here going, well, okay. That's what I want, I think. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be like Jesus, but I know me. And I know I'm like Paul in Romans chapter 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. If you read that last part of Romans 7, every last one of us can identify with that. Paul's saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's the very thing I do. And then in anguish, he says, who shall deliver me from this body of death, he says. You know, just everywhere I go, I'm carrying me with me, and I have that nature with me, and it comes out in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of situations, and it's agonizing. But then he goes on to say, but thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the victory. And then moves on, that's the last verse of Romans 7, moves on to Romans 8, the very first verse says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And reminds us of our position in Him. And then at the latter part of Romans chapter 8, calls us now to action in light of our position. So how can I do this thing that I'm not naturally capable or inclined to do? Page 100. Serving in the midst of difficult circumstances, serving and overcoming our own self-centered nature, and serving those who are unworthy require a miracle. Fortunately, it's one that God desires to grant to each one of us. We'll close then with the two parts of that miracle that every one of us needs in order to serve in our relationships and thus be like Christ. The first part of the miracle happened when Jesus went to the cross on our behalf so that we might be washed and our sins forgiven, so that the Holy Spirit could dwell within us. This is what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Accepting God's grace and his gift of salvation is the first step to being able to show grace and to serve others. Now just stop there for a moment, and I would just ask if there's anyone here who has not received the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers, that free gift, that is offered to you without conditions, simply based upon who he is and what he did on your behalf, if you have not received that, when we pray to close in five minutes, you'll have opportunity from your heart to God to ask Jesus Christ, God having come as man, for a mission to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, you'll have opportunity to ask him to forgive you of all of your sin and to tell him that you want to follow him with your life. And he will give you this gift of salvation, eternal life, without condition. You can now do what you want, but what comes with that is the second thing, the Holy Spirit, which changes what I want to do. It creates a conflict to be sure within me, like Paul had in Romans 7. The things I want, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. I've got that conflict. You'll have it as well. But the good news is you've got that conflict. The good news is there is a regulator internally within you, not outside of you, not a rule, but the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, compelling you 
to move in the direction of being Christ-like, being like Jesus, following Jesus. You will have that. You'll struggle. I struggle. I'm not where He is taking me. But where I am is not where I was. And that will be true of you as well. Why? Because of the second thing. The second part of the miracle is that by the Spirit, we have the power to show grace and to serve others. It requires daily cleansing from God. It's what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. He means we are cleansed and justified by his death on the cross, but we're still in need of daily cleansing and sanctification. We can't live only on past grace. We need present grace, but we serve a gracious God who dispenses that grace lavishly and freely. Okay? So what do you want? Who do you want to be like? And who is it that is pushing your buttons regularly to show that you're not being like Jesus? We're going to bow and pray in just a bit. We're going to confess. For those of us that have come to Jesus, confess our sin. Ask Him for that daily cleansing. Ask Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to reignite that desire within you to be like Him, to want what He wants in your relationships. Those of you who have never come to Jesus, you have this opportunity to receive His free gift of salvation. Let's bow together. We thank You, Lord, for the model of Jesus Christ who came to earth and showed us what true servanthood is as he walked the earth, as he gave himself freely and willingly for others. Despite the fact that he had position, he did not consider the position in heaven's splendor as more important than service for those in need. So we thank you for his example. We thank you for the record of his works while he walked the earth. We thank you most of all that he came and accomplished the mission for which he condescended to this place. That he died on the cross to be our substitute and eternal life is given freely as a gift, not merited. We can't pay for anything that we have done. Jesus has paid it all and all to him we owe. And so, Lord, we thank you for all of that profoundly from our hearts. And those of us who have come to you receiving that free gift, we thank you for it and all the benefits that go with it for your Holy Spirit that now has taken up residence within us and creates this godly conflict within us. A godly conflict because we no longer just give in to the desires of the flesh. But we now have the Spirit warring within us and causing us to want something different. And you give us your grace on a daily basis to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus in every area of our lives, including the most difficult area of our sanctification, our relationships. Lord, for anyone who is here who has never received that free gift, I pray that they're doing that right now that they're acknowledging from their heart to you their own sin, that they're 
recognizing who Jesus is and what Jesus did to pay the penalty for their sin, a penalty that belonged to us, but he willingly took upon himself, that they're repenting of their sin, saying they want to follow you and meaning it from their heart. Lord, asking you to forgive them and to take them. And you promise to do so. Lord Jesus, we need the miracle on a regular basis that only you can provide for us. We ask for hearts that are changed in salvation and hearts that are continually being changed in sanctification. Go with us this afternoon when we get into our cars. Now we ask you, in the parking lot, may our relationships be different because we want to be like you. This afternoon, may we honor you in the way we speak to one another, in the way we confess and ask forgiveness to one another, in the way we model Jesus in front of one another. This week, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, may people see Jesus in us. Lord God, we want to be like Jesus. Help us by your grace. In his name we pray. Amen.